you're listening to a teaching from Sundown Church. We hope you encounter God through our podcast and experience freedom in your life. Well, uh, good morning and thank you all for not coming. We will... uh, just recognize just the joy of being able to be together but not being able to see each other. Uh, I'm not going to spend much time this morning addressing the coronavirus and the many issues that that has created for us all, but I do want to acknowledge one thing. I am very excited to see the church grow in strength as we stay away from one another physically. The church, his body, is a spiritual organism given a body given a soul as we have been taught, by which it can fully express its spiritual and supernatural call and purpose, to see the true organism function, to see its heartbeat, to see its hands work, to see its mouth praise, its lungs fill with the breath of the Spirit, to see its knees to bow and its voice to cry out. That is still the body of Christ. It's truly amazing, and it's absolutely welcomed. I love Sunday mornings together. I love Sunday nights and Wednesday nights when we gather. But the strength of those moments is found in the faith of God, which is discovered and exposed in all of our many hours that we are not together. The real strength of church is found at the dinner tables with families, at times of family devotion and prayer, during time with friends at Bible studies and caring for the neighbors whose needs uh, and, and require those moments of kindness. To that kindness I see each day <clears throat> and the discovery of a church whose doors cannot be closed, I am most grateful. I think it might be from that discovery that this message has come. God has had my heart and my mind in one place throughout these last few days. And uh, much to some's dismay, I'm going to introduce what's been on my heart with a song. It has become, uh, if it becomes too painful for you to listen to, you can just fast forward a little bit and get to the part right after it. But here's a song that's been running through my head. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful? 
who will all our sorrow share. Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge, take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou will find the solace there. Blessed Savior, thou hast promised. Thou will all our burdens bear. May we ever, Lord, be bringing all to Thee in earnest prayer. Soon in glory bright unclouded, there will be no need for prayer. Rapture, praise, and endless worship will be our sweet portion there. The great American <clears throat> evangelist Dwight L. Moody incorporated this song into his sermons. He, he incorporated it into his writings and into his teaching, and it caused many to believe that this song is an American hymn, but it's not so. It was written by an Irishman in Canada. 150 years ago, two businessmen stood on a Port Hope, Ontario street corner as a little man carrying a saw walked by. One of the businessmen said, now there is a man who is happy with his lot in life. I wish I could know his joy. Perhaps I can get him to cut my winter supply of wood. I know that man. The other one said, he would not cut your firewood. He cuts wood only for the financially destitute and for those who are physically handicapped and cannot cut their own firewood. That young woodcutter was named Joseph Scriven. He was the son of a captain in the British Royal Marines. He was born in Ireland in 1819, and after receiving his university degree with Trinity College in London, he quickly established himself as a teacher. He fell in love and made plans to settle in his hometown, and then tragedy struck. The tragedy of Joseph Scriven was extreme. The Irishman, hoping for a new start in a new life, moved to Canada to start anew, start again, away from his sadness. His hope was not realized in that sadness and grief met him there as well. The 25-year-old Scriven took a vow of poverty, sold all of his earthly possessions, and vowed to give his life to the physically handicapped and financially destitute. Ten years later, Scriven received word that his mother had become very ill, and the man who had taken a vow of poverty didn't have the, mon the money to go home to help care for her. Heart sick and feeling a need to reach out to her, he wrote the story of his life. In these short verses, he called, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Later, Scriven said, The Lord and I wrote the song together. Several of his friends got a copy, and one of them carried a copy to a music publisher within two years 
This little poem of inspiration had been published and coupled to a tune written by American lawyer Charles Converse. Two decades later, the great American evangelist, Dwight L. Moody, came across the song and believed it to be the most touching modern hymn that he had ever heard. It was Moody who gave the song a national platform and caused so many to think that the song had been written in America. Ironically, Joseph Scriven drowned in a Canadian lake in 1886. He did not see his song carried to every corner of the globe. The idea of God as our friend is an idea or a thought that is radically hard for us to hold in our heads and hold in our hearts if we think or if we ponder on it for even a moment. As you know, I teach a great deal on our relationship with God as our Father. This is how Jesus addressed him throughout the New Testament and places a great emphasis on it in his prayer in John chapter 17. In his prayer, he announces that he has given us, shown us, manifested to us his Father as our Father. I love the verses that tell of that relationship. The passage in Galatians 4 that tells us that we are no longer servants but children. In John chapter 3, we are reminded of what manner of love the fathers bestowed upon us that we could be called, should be called, the children of God. And from John chapter 1, we read that as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. I understand this relationship and a father and child very well. But I will readily admit that God as my friend is a bit harder to fully grasp. I want us to look at John chapter 15. If you want to get your Bible, open it to John chapter 15. I want to read where he has made this profound announcement. I'll begin reading in John chapter 15 uh, with verse 8. Herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. And I want to stop there for just a second. He clearly, so clearly states in John chapter 15, we know what's going on. He's a few hours away from the crucifixion. He's a few hours away from bringing his disciples into the hardest thing that they have ever seen, hardest thing they've ever been involved with. They've seen some hard things already. Nothing compared to what they're about to see. And he tells them, I'm telling you these things, these most important things in the last hours of my life, in the last conversation I will have with you on this side of the cross, I'm telling you these things that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. Now, again, this is a message for us in all times, but it seems particularly profound right now because joy seems to be a hard thing to find for many. The circumstance in the situation have grown so large, the fear so overwhelming, the joy seems to be a rare commodity. 
He continues in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do whatsoever, I command you. Henceforth, from this point forward, I call you not servants. For the servant knows not what his Lord does. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. You have not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So there is the profound announcement. You are my friends. So what is the difference? I pray right here, and I'm going to just stop and pray for just a second. I'm going to pray right here that the Holy Spirit will bring clarity to you as I find it difficult to fully describe all this running through me, through my mind at this time. Father, I will share the words that you've given me to share. But the true understanding here of you as our friend is going to have to come from you. Father, this is almost incomprehensible to me. I don't know all that you would ever want us to know about you being our father. But, but to understand you as friend seems even more strange, but more dynamic, equally dynamic, necessary for us to know you fully in the power of all that you have for us. So, Father, what I can't do in trying to express these few words that you've given me, I pray, Father, now for the full release of the Holy Spirit in this truth, so that it will, even as someone hears it, it will grow larger in their ears than the words would ever allow. That it would become more profound in their mind and make their heart beat stronger. Not because of the words, but because of your presence in the words, your spirit releasing truth. Father, I pray that you would do that. In Jesus' name this morning, amen. So first... In a conversation between a child and their father, the boundaries in that relationship are very well established. The communication flows easily, but in a way that says, he is my father and I am his child. We've all been in those situations enough to realize there are very normal and very natural boundaries in a conversation between a father and a child. There are things said and there are absolutely things that are unsaid. There are things that we feel very free to express and things that we feel like we, could, we just can't express. He's my father. And so there is a very natural communication flow, a very expected communication flow between a father and a child. So that communication flows easily, but fixed by the boundaries of father and child. That emotional, mental, and physical structure of a parent and child is very well fixed. They are bigger, 
The parent's stronger, smarter, wiser. The parents are more stable, more calming, more encouraging, and all the other things we could include in this list. We are weaker, and much of what is found in the relationship is our realizing as a child that we are in great need of what our parent can do that we can't. To give what we can't get and restore that which we have broken. Again, this description of our relationship with God as our Father is beyond words and beyond our comprehension. I could never adequately teach all this involved in this parent-child relationship. In our teaching and growing in the Spirit, we spend a great deal of time discovering God's identity as our Father, a Father's love for a child, a Father's grace, a Father's mercy, a Father's kindness, and we need it. It's so essential in the discovering of who we are that we discover who He is. So we spend a great deal of time discovering God's identity as our Father, as our provision, our peace, our Savior. All of that, all of these things fully and correctly acknowledge that He is worthy of all praise, me on my knees, and Him high and lifted up. That all makes sense to me. I, I think it makes sense to all of us. So here's the question. If he wants me, as he declared, to be his friend, he does something that one has to fully agree with all that stuff above. It can't be indifference to it. It can't be against it. It has to be in agreement with it. But two, established another layer of how he wants us to see him. He wants us to see him in this relationship as a friend so that we can more fully understand what it looks like for us to let his friendship with us now flow through us to others. If I don't know him as friend the way he wants me to know him as friend, then his friendship given to us can't flow through us to, the, to our friends so that they know the friendship of God, not just ours. Common teaching, we teach this all the time, this river flowing, but we've we understand that in the, in the father-child relationship. Now he's expressing it to us. But I also call you in full agreement with everything else. I also call you friend. Ultimately, what his friendship with us looks like will determine what our friendship with others will look like. Our friendship with each other as believers is actually his friendship overflowing out of us, out of this earthen vessel, with the overflow now touching each of us. Now, I will, through the strangeness of this conversation, when I consider that, when I consider the strangeness of the conversation that he had, now I'll call you friends. I'm sure this didn't seem as unusual to the disciples sitting there one-on-one -on -one, one -on -one with him, because they do. Even in, in John chapter 14, 15, and 16, in this very intimate conversation that he's having, they understand him as a friend. But I want us to notice something about that friendship. I can't think of God as friend without going to Exodus 32. This has to be one of the strangest passages in the Bible. And I read it and I still shake my head every time as I read it. I can't quite grasp what this moment 
had to be like for Moses. Here it is. I'm going to read from Exodus chapter 32. I'm going to begin reading with verse 7. And the Lord said unto Moses, <clears throat> Go, get thee down for thy people. Notice he's, God's calling him now Moses' people. For your people, thy people, which you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. And I just think this is so unusual, so humorous that God's saying, They're your people, Moses, you brought them out of the land of Egypt. They have corrupted themselves. Verse 8, they have turned aside quickly out of the way which I've commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed thereunto and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. And Moses besought the Lord. Now, this, in this moment, this is not a child looking up to a father. Something is happening here. There's a dynamic here. There is something so powerfully unusual that we would not even consider to dare to approach this same moment. But yet it's here. It's in this scripture. So Moses besought the Lord, spoke to the Lord, his God. Notice the Lord, his God, but notice how he talks to him. And said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against your people? Now Moses is saying, you just announced that those were my people. I'm telling you, God, those aren't my people. Those are your people you're talking about. And then he says, which you brought forth out of the land of Egypt. God had just said, Moses, you brought them out. And, and Moses is saying back to God, no, they're your people. You brought them forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, for mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. Now, I will, I'll tell you, this, makes, this, this can make me nervous to preach. This is why I shake my head. <clears throat> this is Moses talking to God. And he's telling God to repent Change your mind. Turn from this plan. Turn from this thought. Verse 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self, <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and said unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. Now again, I don't know what you're doing in this moment. I'm not sure where you are. I'm not sure if you're at home or in your car. But I suspect from a passage like this, recorded in this scripture, 
and with everything we need to consider of Old Testament and New Testament, everything that needs to be thought through and considered, the reality here is the same. Moses had a most unusual conversation with his God. I don't think, I, I, will, I will give you again a wide berth to disagree with me strongly on this. But I don't think this conversation could be held if Moses didn't know God as his friend. I don't think there could be this kind of challenge, this kind of thought expressed, this kind of general conversation. If, if the communication would only flow one way from God as God to Moses as a servant, to Moses as a child, where all he would say would be, yes, sir, I'll obey. Yes, sir, I'll obey. I don't think there could be this kind of conversation if there wasn't some element of friendship in this. And the Lord repented. He changed his mind and turned from that which he said he would do. Why? Was it because Moses was his friend? Was it because Moses knew in a profound way what we cannot seem to discover? that I can have a face-to-face -face conversation with God as my friend. It is a conversation still born in awe, still born in wonder at the Father, a conversation, if you will, that is up and down, a small child talking to a powerful, loving Father, but coupled with a conversation that is sideways, person-to-person, face-to-face, two friends sitting face-to-face -face with each other. When I sit with anyone, any one of you, the conversations are friends face to face. And in that, we understand a new dynamic. I'm not Lord over you. I, I, you have every reason to ask, to push back, to question, to give opinion, to have a true conversation that is not one-sided, as it could often be with a father speaking to a child where I can express something to a father more than a need, more than a hope, more than an expectation. I can actually have a conversation with my God in awe and in wonder of who he is, but a question that he allows me in this teaching to approach him also as a friend. A child sitting with a father or mother is not likely going to feel this absolute freedom to push back in disagreement or in challenge as a friend would one to another. Please read again this amazing story of how Moses spoke freely to God, whom he greatly loved, who he revered, feared, and trusted. But read again how he felt the freedom, the need to address this beloved God as a friend, as a friend would to another friend. This is as challenging to us as trying to fully grasp why God would call us joint heirs with Jesus. We fully know that we are not in all ways on a comprehensible level, comparative level with Jesus. But he says we're joint heirs, and we've had this teaching enough, but I'll remind you that if you and I were heirs to a piece of property, then that would simply mean that I could sell my piece, you could sell your piece, and we could go on about our merry way. But as joint heirs, it means that everything has to be done in agreement. Now, why would he put me on that level with his son as a joint heir? 
why would he so connect me to him as a joint heir? Why not just say we inherited, we are heirs, and establish that? But why such a specific instruction to put us on a level as a joint heir with his son? I'm not the savior of the world. I'm not the prince of peace. I'm not the Christ. But he worked diligently for three and a half years during his public ministry to help his disciples know and for us to know now that in this relationship as child to father, we are like him, precisely like him. In one aspect, we are precisely like Jesus. Many don't like that teaching that we are in any way like him. As a matter of fact, some people hearing this would say, no, we, we, we can't in any way be like him. He's God. I agree with that. But many years ago when I heard Ian Thomas teaching here in this church in Sundown and in other places where he makes this statement, never less than God, but never more than man. It captures so well what, what, what I'm trying to say. Yes, he was fully God, but he chose to never in any way to act more than man. He did that so that we could connect, so that we would understand, so that we could understand how this father-child relationship was supposed to work. For me to understand that I'm a joint heir, for me to understand that I am his friend, I need to go to Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes and to Leviticus 2. I'm not going to read from Matthew 5. You know the scripture well. In the Beatitudes, blessed are you. Jesus announces that we are the salt of the earth. This again was not table salt he was referring to. He was referring to the salt that was used in temple worship. It was the salt that had to always accompany the meat offering as it was taken before God. The meat offering could not be taken without the salt. Again, doesn't seem like a big deal. But when we read in Leviticus chapter 2, where this is explained, maybe we'll understand it. Here's what it says in Leviticus 2. I'll begin reading in verse 11. No meat offering which you shall bring unto the Lord shall be made with leaven, false doctrine. For you shall burn no leaven nor any honey in any offering of the Lord made by fire. As for the oblation, the offering of the first fruits, you shall offer them unto the Lord, but they shall not be burned on the altar for a sweet savor. Now, verse 13, this is where the instruction is. And every oblation, every sacrifice of thy meat, every offering of the meat offering, shalt thou season with salt. Neither shalt thou suffer the salt of the covenant of thy God to be lacking from thy meat offering, with all thine offerings, thou shalt offer salt. Now, again, when we understand the components of this, as we are clearly taught, clearly told, we understand who is the meat offering. Who was sacrificed? It's Jesus. So the announcement is this, that the sacrifice of Jesus has to be accompanied by the salt of the earth, us. They have to be attached they can't be separated. Jesus is announcing the purpose of the sacrifice means I have to take the salt of the earth with me in that sacrifice. They have to die as well. 
they have to be sacrificed as well. It is their sin I'm taking. It is them who have to die as well. He is once and for all connecting the salt and the meat offering. Therefore, it's not hard for me to understand why I, he calls me a joint heir. One won't work without the other. I can't simply offer the salt. I can't offer myself alone. He can't offer himself alone. He has to offer himself in connection with us, our connection with him. Every oblation of the meat offering shalt thou season with salt. The meat offering always required salt. The whys of this <clears throat> are really deep, really profound. And I'm not sure I can uncover them all. Some, yes. The depth of that is still almost beyond my comprehension. But I do think it's also why God showed me a few weeks ago this simple truth that I've shared with you. I believe that when, when God <clears throat> was searching for Adam in the garden, fully knowing where Adam was, that he was searching to announce to Adam that he could not do on the earth what he fully intended, what he fully planned without Adam. Again, we see God coming to Adam after Adam because he's angry. We see that because of the punishment that follows or the outcome of this. I, I wish I had time I would teach the other lesson. I guess I've got all the time in the world. There's nobody in here that seems to be upset by how much time is passing. Nobody seems to be getting up or wanting to move around. <clears throat> so I guess I have all the time that I need. I'll save that for another day. I believe that what God said to Adam was, Adam, you may think that you can do this without me, but Adam, I'm here to tell you that I can't do this without you. I've only placed my image, Adam, on you. I didn't put my image on the mountains. Is my glory there? Yes. Is my glory in the magnificence of these animals? Yes. But not my image. My image, Adam, is confined to you. And, and later to, to Adam and to Eve. I've stamped my image there. Again, I think that's a profound thought a profound truth revealed as God would show us why he needed Adam because the image. I shared this from a story not too long ago from a scripture where they asked Jesus trying to trap him, should we pay taxes unto Caesar? He knew what they were doing. He knew it very well. He knew that if he said, yes, we're supposed to pay taxes, the Jews who had been paying the taxes would be angry. He knew if he said, no, we're not supposed to pay taxes, that they would arrest him for heresy and for and for sedition. So they knew, he knew what they were doing. He asked for a coin, and he asked whose image was on it. And they said Caesar's. And he says, well, if it's got Caesar's image on it, give it to Caesar. But render unto me that which is mine. Now, how will we know what's his? Well, if the image of Caesar determined that it was Caesar's, then the image of God would determine that it's God's. We can see so plainly that you and I today are designed to be the expression of God's image. Now, if I only know him as a son knows a father, a child knows a parent, then I can't fully display the image of God because there's such a portion of this where we have to know him as friend. We have to understand some things about him. 
I think that 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 question, again, was so profound to me because I think it's still the same question as I've explained before that God asks us now. For me, for Parker, who's sitting back in the sound booth and doing the recording this morning, for all of us, when the image is not on display, I believe God asks us, where did you go? Where are you hiding? Are you hiding in religion? Are you hiding in your, in your last offense where somebody hurt your feelings? Are you hiding in tradition? Where are you hiding? I need you. I want to put my full image on display. I want to put my spirit in you so that I can fully, by my spirit, display myself through your hands and through your heart and through your feet. God has so established us that we can know him fully as father and also know him fully as a friend. I can, as Jacob discovered at Penuel, that he can see God and speak to God face to face. Moses heard it announced to his brother and to Mary and his sister directly from, from that God that he would address Moses face to face when they were grumbling. Why do you speak to Moses? When Aaron and Miriam were, were grumbling and God very specifically said, I will address Moses face to face. I can ask him what a friend would ask any other friend. I hope you get that this morning. I hope you realize that in this struggle, we're probably going to want to ask God questions that we might otherwise feel like we couldn't. I can trust his response as a friend to a friend. If I'm going to ask him as a friend to a friend, I expect he will respond a friend to a friend. In John 14, 15, 16, this last conversation that Jesus has with his disciples, early in John 14, they begin to ask him questions. How can this be? How can they? They were challenging him. Why? Because they saw him as a friend. They had walked with him for three and a half years. They were understanding, beginning to understand the awe and the wonder. Who wouldn't, when the, when the storms were calm and the thousands were fed, who wouldn't have been in many ways touched by the wonder? But he also allowed them to know him as friend, to ask the questions and they could trust, as we can read, that he answered them as a friend. I want your joy to be full when I'm gone away. I can open up about my struggles as a friend. I can tell him what a friend might tell another friend while finding it hard to tell the same thing to a parent. I know that our parents have a great desire to be our best friends. I know where that came from. It came from him. We have a hard time seeing that sometime in the struggle of a parent having to discipline and correct. It's hard to see them as our best friends. But God is saying to us today, I can be both. I am absolutely both. I am your father and I am your friend. We need to know him this way. As the songwriter of what a friend we have in Jesus had to discover that friendship for him was found in a time of great struggle. I didn't read all the details of his struggle. It just seemed too heavy for the moment. The struggle was extreme. That's the way I described it. It was. 
I didn't feel it necessary to say a whole lot more. But from that struggle, he discovered something. He discovered what a friend we have in Jesus. Once discovered and once fully known, his friendship with us will flow from us as freely and liberally to those around us as his friendship did to us. That's the desire this morning. If I know him as friend, I will know his friendship for me as he knows my friendship for him. And I will in all things as we have taught about this river that flows so freely, I will realize that it is his friendship that, is, that was given to me so openly and so freely is now the friendship that flows from me to others. No judgment, no harsh review, no need to analyze, but with a willingness to have an open face-to-face conversation where I can truly say to God what's on my mind, what's on my heart, and know that I'm not going to offend him. He is my friend. I'm grateful for such amazing friends as God has given Jan and I and that God has given to our family. I am more grateful that the friendship that I see is born in his friendship with us. It is full and it's overflowing. Father, thank you this morning that we can come together, even with miles between us. Father, that that no one can hamper, hinder, alter, or delay the work of your body. You taught us that well. When, when the centurion came asking you to come and to heal someone and, you, and you, you get ready to go and the servant says, you don't need to come. You have power from right here. I can say as a commander to go here and to go there and to do this and I know that it will be done. And you, I know, you, Father, you were amazed. Jesus, you were amazed in that moment. You said what faith We could see in that moment, unlike others, what an unusual faith. Well, Father, I know today that by miles that are between us, that your spirit is not hampered in any way. And I thank you, Father, that even in this difficult time, we're discovering that. We're having to. We're having to understand that this hour together in this church, as welcome as it is and as much as we love it, that it is not the body of Christ. The body of Christ is gathered in homes today, separate places, in living rooms and in cars. The body and the work of the Holy Spirit through this body may may thrive in this moment more than it has in a long time. To hear the voice of strength, to hear a voice of the Spirit that whispers to us, loves us, cares for us. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for what we're seeing and discovering in this moment that otherwise might not have ever been seen or ever discovered. We know, Father, promises have been made. Assurance is given. These moments of trial, these moments of test don't make us question whether those are true. They help us realize how they can become true. How can this be such a place of hope? How can this church be? All that you've said it will be. Well, Father, we now see how. We see how something so small, microscopic, 
can turn a world. We are not discovering a new question. We're finding answers. And thank you, Father, that I get to share those answers with my friends. Thank you, Father, that you've given such good friends. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message. For more resources, visit sundownchurch.com.